Today's scripture reading comes from 1 John. We're continuing our series uh, through the letter of 1 John, and we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. This is the word of the Lord. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. God, we thank you just for this time, and uh, we thank you for your word. And, you know, your word is not something that we want to just learn um, intellectually, but it's something that we want to turn to for life and for correction and for uh, to know you and to know what it is that you call us uh, to do and to be. And so uh, we turn to your word, and we pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would make this word alive to us, uh, to our minds, to our hearts, to our very souls, um, that it would shape us, it would form us, and it would fill us um, so that we might think your thoughts after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, so as I said, we are going through a series on 1 John, and we are reflecting on some pretty simple messages about walking in the light, being in fellowship with God, uh, and loving others. And uh, this week I was thinking about the fact that, you know, John was actually kind of an old man when he wrote this letter. Uh, I think he's probably in his 80s at this point, and he has seen a lot, and he has lived through a lot, uh, and had a pretty full life of faith. And as he is trying to shepherd this particular community through a crisis that they're experiencing, where you have these false teachers and you have a, a broken community, uh, he goes back to a very basic and a very simple message. Now, there's a theologian uh, from the 18th century named John Wesley, who uh, you know, subsequently actually was ahead of his time because he was one of the uh, theologians who wrote against uh, slavery and for the abolition of slavery. And I think he also um, was friends with or was mentors to uh, Wilberforce and uh, I guess was a part of uh, abolishing slavery in Britain. Uh, but he, he actually loved this book, First John, and he thought it was one of the most important books in the Bible. And he imagined that the Apostle John uh, was maybe one of the most spiritually mature persons in the Bible, uh, because he had reached this point where he realized uh, the importance of love. I thought about what kinds of things would be important to me uh, when I was, if I were in my senior years, if I were in my 70s, or if I were in my 80s, I guess uh, I started thinking about what kind of questions would I ask myself? What would I think about if I was still uh, in ministry and preaching sermons, what kind of sermons would I think would be important to preach? And my guess is that the older I got, probably the more basic and the more simple uh, my messages would be. 
And actually, in a sense, that's probably the case too. Um, from when I started uh, preaching sermons at the age of 22, 23, and now, uh, I do think probably my messages have gotten simpler because uh, as you get older, there is a sense that, um, you know, as important as some of the complex things are, it's actually the simpler and basic aspects of the Christian faith that are so important. And so as an elderly man, I would probably ask things like, ask myself things like this, did you have deep fellowship with God in your life? Did you live obediently for him? And did you love others well? Uh, during seminary, there was uh, this Old Testament professor. And while I was there, I think it was my first year uh, while I was a seminary student, uh, he had the serious form of cancer and the prognosis wasn't good. And so uh, I think the community was preparing that he was going to pass away soon. And he gave a final chapel message uh, where he addressed the entire school. And you know, even though it's seminary, you would think maybe chapels would be filled because it's future pastors and missionaries and things like that. But no, usually people don't uh, attend chapels. They weren't very well attended. But this particular chapel meeting, it was a packed house. Uh, everyone had a sense that this was going to be the last time that we got to hear from this particular Old Testament professor uh, in this public setting. And by all accounts, he seemed to be a very beloved man and a very godly man. And I still remember the message that he gave and that he spoke uh, because it was placed in a context where there's actually a lot of division within the seminary community over some theological issues. And I heard he was kind of like the glue that was holding both sides together, uh, which turned out to be the case because, you know, after he died, the conflict actually got much worse between these factions. But in that final chapel message, he actually preached from First John. He was a very smart and very educated man. He was a scholar of Old Testament, and he probably could have pointed out all kinds of uh, complexities and all kinds of cool things in the Bible through his message, but for his final address to uh, the seminary community, he just gave his really simple message about loving one another. And it was really impactful, uh, at least to me at the time, because this simple message was coming from, uh, again, a biblical scholar, uh, who probably had a lot more to say and could see a lot more in scripture, uh, but what he found to be really important uh, at the end of his life, as he faced the reality of death, was this, love one another. Now we are going through 1 John because we need to remember some of these very basic things as well. And so as we go through the series, I want you, you to ask yourself, am I a loving person? Am I walking in the light? Is there any hate in my heart for anybody? Do I love people who are different from me? Do I love people who have even hurt me? Do I love people who I disagree with or have a different perspective than me? Because when we get old, our lives will probably be marked by how well we were able to love God and to love people. Uh, David Brooks sometimes writes columns in the New York Times, uh, opinion columns. He's an author. Uh, he wrote a book on character, and he makes a distinction between resume characteristics and eulogy characteristics. And he says, resume characteristics are what you achieve and what you can put down on paper, but eulogy characteristics are the ones that people will remember at your funeral. Will people remember how successful you are or how much you achieved in your career or in life or how much money you made? Or will they remember you for your love? And my guess is it will be for the latter. But it's not just how others will remember you that matters because at the end of the day, 
it's not all that important that people remember us. Uh, people who knew us directly will remember us, but the reality is after a few generations, uh, nobody will probably remember us anymore. And according to Jesus in John chapter 13, verse 35, what really actually matters is that by our love for one another, people will know that we are Jesus's disciples. And that's why it is important to be marked by love. And that's a big contrast to the later uh, Gnostic thinking that developed that would say what really matters is if you have this special knowledge and you are an enlightened person, but that's not what Jesus seems to have in mind when the world um, when he talks to his disciples in the Gospel of John. And he says, the world will recognize you that you are my disciples based on how you love one another. And uh, this leads to the first point in this passage. Uh, starting in verse 3, I know the text isn't in front of you uh, anymore, but in verse 3, John says this, And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And John is saying that one of the evidence that you know God is based on your obedience to his commandments. Now, that's not the same as to say your salvation is based on your obedience to God, but one of the evidence that you do know God is based on how uh, you obey God and his commandments. Not only that, but obedience to his commandments is also evidence for our love for him, how much we love God himself. Now, I don't know if Christians in the West um, emphasize this enough, enough. You know, if you grew up in an immigrant church context, then maybe you thought that uh, that immigrant church context overemphasized things like obedience and sacrifice, and there was not enough about grace and a personal relationship with God. And everything was about how you had to do certain things in obedience to God. But in a Western individualistic context, the focus is about having this personal relationship with God and cultivating that vertical dimension in that relationship. It's about making sure you have your quiet times with God as an expression of personal devotion. And of course, uh, those are good things. And some of you have probably been formed by both contexts, which I think is probably a good thing. But if you think being a disciple of Jesus means having your own personal devotions and uh, your spiritual vitality is about how well you're doing personally and privately and individually without having an active love for others, then you probably have an incomplete understanding of what it actually means to know Jesus. Because John's test here uh, of what gives you assurance as a believer that you know God, that you love God, is not about how much personal time you spend with the Lord, although that is important, but it's actually about whether your life is marked by love. Now, I think Western individualistic values tend to look at obedience in a negative light. So Western culture prizes individual and personal freedom, and therefore there's a slight allergy to things like obedience and things like submitting to authority structures. And you can see that in the pandemic, uh, it, it reveals some of our cultural values because people are refusing orders to wear masks indoors because they say it's a personal violation of my own individual liberties. And, uh, you know, especially American uh, Western culture, people just don't like being told what to do. But, you know, Christianity wouldn't look at obedience as something that is uh, taking away your personal liberties or curbing your personal liberties. It's actually, it looks at obedience as uh, making you whole again and therefore giving you freedom from sin. And not only that, but it's actually how you demonstrate your love for God. So in verse 5, John says, uh, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now, that phrase, love of God, is a little bit grammatically ambiguous because it could mean God's love for me, 
or it could mean our love for God. But uh, I think the context should suggest that it's referring to our love for God. What does it mean that our love for God is perfected by keeping his word? It means that through our obedience, our love for God grows towards maturity and towards completion. Whereas sin has left us as a fractured people, God's commands leads us towards wholeness and bringing us, uh, making us whole and repairing that fracture. And that's how we should understand obedience to God's commands. It's not about restricting personal liberty. It's not about taking away our joy. It's not about imposing unreasonable standards as if God's goal is to take away our happiness. It is actually about loving God, becoming whole, and showing the world that we are Jesus' disciples. And if you say you know God, but you aren't keeping his word, John calls you a liar. He says you're a liar. So what are his commandments? Well, in the Gospels, Jesus summarizes them when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus spoke those words, uh, he wasn't exactly saying anything new. He was simply summarizing the law from the Old Testament, and he was drawing from uh, the book of Deuteronomy. And yet when Jesus spoke it, there actually was something new about it. That's what John is getting at in verses 7 to 8. He says this, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. And then he seems to contradict himself because after that he says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing you, which is true in him and in you, because darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And uh, you, you read that right next to each other. And it does sound like John is directly contradicting himself, doesn't it? Uh, and, you know, that's not, nothing new to humans. We probably contradict ourselves all the time, but we usually don't do it in consecutive sentences because that's too obvious that it's a contradiction. So how come John says he is not writing this new commandment, but then in the very next sentence, he says, at the same time, it is a new commandment. Well, sometimes something old can be made to feel new. So, for example, in music, you might have known a certain song or a tune that is old, but then it gets put into the hands of a, a master musician who plays it the way it was always played, but brings a sense of newness to it. Or you can say the same thing about food. Uh, you can take something that is old and familiar, like pizza or a bowl of noodles, and you put it in the hands of a master chef who can make this very old traditional dish feel like something that is new. The command to love is not a new command, but when that command is understood in view of who Jesus is and what he has done, it is experienced from a new perspective. The beginning of the passage gives us a clue as to why we might experience the commandment to love in a new way. John says that in Jesus, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, an advocate is someone who is on your side. An advocate is somebody who is making a case for you. And so how is Jesus an advocate for us? Well, you continue to read in verse 2, and it says he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, that word propitiation, I probably have to define because it's not a word that you see every day. Uh, it essentially means, uh, although some debate about the Greek of the word, but essentially it means it is the appeasing of God's anger or wrath towards us. So when Jesus died on the cross, God's wrath is poured out upon him for our sin rather than upon us. And that goes along with the sense that Jesus is our advocate, because if Jesus is making a case for us before the Father, he can rest his case on one thing alone, his own sacrificial death upon the cross. You see, because if Jesus were to say, 
I'm going to be an advocate for George here because he served orphans. And so therefore he deserves grace. But then God could say, yeah, but what about when George used the slaves to build that orphanage? Uh, or what if Jesus were to say, I think you should pardon Joe because he was very nice to people. Then God could say, yeah, but Joe also ignored uh, all these people who were suffering and all these people who were being oppressed and all these people who were living on the streets. And uh, he was kind of cold to them. Do you see the complication of having a merit-based system? If Jesus were to advocate for us based upon our merits, we would likely lose. We would most definitely actually lose. You see, the only way that Jesus can successfully be our advocate is if he himself is the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus could say, you should pardon so-and-so, not because of their merits, not because of the good that they have done, but you should pardon so-and-so because I'm going to pay the fine, or more accurately, I'm going to pay the death penalty on their behalf, and there is no case that you can bring against that. But here's what we really need to know on some level beyond the intellect. Uh, that, that act that Jesus is our advocate and the propitiation for our sins, we have to know that at a level of the heart. It has to touch us. Um, we have to know that Jesus became our advocate and propitiation because he loved us. And that has to do something to us. Uh, it's a kind of love where Jesus loved us first, even while we, we were still his enemies. And that's why in one sense, the commandment to love is a new commandment. It's like a master chef taking this traditional recipe and infinitely elevating its flavor profile. Jesus takes love as it was understood under the law and he now presents it as something new through his death upon a cross. If you are a believer, then you claim you have eaten of that elevated meal. That you didn't just have the old meal, but you have tasted this meal in the hands of a master chef. You claim to know the love of Christ. You claim to know that your sins have been forgiven, not of your own merits, but out of sheer grace. You claim to know that while you were an enemy of God, Jesus still died for you. You claim to know that your life was purchased at a great cost. You claim to know that God has welcomed you as a father welcomed home his prodigal son. If you claim to know these things, how can you not love one another? It's an impossibility for someone to have fellowship with God and yet hate his brother or sister. The only way you can explain that disparity uh, is you know, you might just be a really immature believer and you need to grow. Or, as John says in verse 4, you're a liar and the truth is actually not in you. Now, I do believe the message of Jesus' love is what we really need so that we can love one another. And, you know, I think it is getting harder and harder to talk to people uh, who disagree with your perspective, uh, just culturally, I don't mean uh, us in particular. Um, and people are, seem to be getting less and less tolerant of divergent opinions. And, you know, I forget what article it was, but I read an article recently that was saying that these new ideological tribes that are forming are kind of becoming like the new religion of the day. Uh, these new religions, they provide a sense of belonging and community as long as you agree ideologically. And uh, they will be quick to excommunicate you if you violate the sanctity of whatever ideology is being espoused. And the way uh, to conversation and transformation, therefore, the tools towards conversion and transformation is by way of power. 
And the problem is power without love uh, eventually will corrupt everything. And these are, I think, some of the lessons learned in, for example, South Africa during the apartheid. But you see in God's design, uh, love is the most important currency. Love is what leads to actual true reconciliation. Love is what enables you to have empathy towards those who do not have the same experiences of life as you. Love is what enables you to continue to love those who offend you and hurt you. And that's probably why some of the greatest examples and some of the greatest teachers of love are probably going to be found in traditions uh, that we might be unfamiliar with, but the traditions of the Black church. It's one thing to love others when uh, you come from a triumphant perspective. It's another thing to continue to love others when you come from a perspective of being part of the oppressed. Love, perseverance, and hope look different um, when you are part of a people or part of a group, or if you are an individual who has experienced oppression, uh, which is why I think we have a lot to learn about uh, the gospel. We have a lot to learn about what it means to love from our Black brothers and sisters, uh, from Black churches. And the best of um, their traditions uh, really teaches us what love looks like and how far people are uh, willing and able to go to express love. I saw a video clip of uh, this theologian, this Black theologian in Cornell West, who is an African-American studies professor at Harvard, and he's also a political activist. And uh, you might have seen him because he's like a frequent guest on you know, various shows. Uh, let me be honest, I don't really know him that well. I've only known him from his TV appearances. And I haven't really read any of his books, so I don't actually know what he writes about from a scholarly perspective. But uh, he did say something that caught my attention uh, when he was on this news show uh, talking about um, how he had attended George Floyd's memorial service. And let me just read, I got a transcript of what he said. So let me just read you what he said. Uh, this is um, to Anderson Cooper. He said, it, it was a heavy day, my brother. And yet I was buoyed up because I saw in the hearts and minds and souls, not just of the Floyd family, but of the church, of the music, the preaching, a love, not one reference to hatred or revenge. It was all about love and justice. It's in the great tradition of the best of black people, of people who have been hated chronically, systemically for 400 years, but have taught the world so much about love and how to love. What is it about these black people so thoroughly subjugated, but want freedom for everybody? That's a grand gift to the world, right in the bowels at the center of an American empire that is enslaved, Jim Crow, Jane Crow still washing out of these loved warriors. That's what I saw in the Floyd family, and I was buoyed up. That's where we come from, Shiloh Baptist Church. You can put us down, but you're not going to put us down in such a way that we're going to hate you because you become the point of reference. No, we're going to put a smile on Arsenia's face. That's his mama, this is George Floyd's mother. That's where he is right now. He's lying right next to sister Arsenia, whose way of engaging the world was embracing it with all of the love. And you put that in context and how does one love um, in the midst of you know, such hard experiences and uh, in the midst of such darkness? Uh, and you know, oppression is not something new. So communities have been oppressed throughout history, including uh, the early church, uh, including the people of Israel, right? And the question is when you are being so oppressed, how do you continue to love? How can you continue to love even those who 
hurt you and even those who oppress you. And I think John is saying this, we can love even in those cases because darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In Christ, light has come to illuminate a dark and evil world. And so there is always hope. Now there was always darkness and darkness and evil is still a present reality. But the light of Christ will one day suffocate it until it is no more at the resurrection. John's message here is very simple. Love one another. Jesus' message is very simple. Love God. Love neighbor. Um, now, if we want great examples of it, um, perhaps we should sit at the feet of um, people who have been oppressed and continue to demonstrate love. Uh, I do think we have a lot to learn from the black church with respect to that. Uh, and I think um, in many ways they can disciple us and show us what it really means to love uh, one another and to love neighbor. Um, let's pray together.